Bad Bob's Bummer Boy Bottoms Out. <laughs> Welcome back to Check This Please, the podcast where it would be cool if we had some sort of opening thing that we said every time to like kind of brand the podcast, but we don't. Maybe one will develop naturally over time, but not so Yeah, long. maybe, maybe. But How about that Zach Zimmerman's ass? <sighs> How about it? I mean, as I said recently, it's very large. And, you know, I like to think that things are being inserted into it a lot of the time. I have to imagine that they are. I just don't know how else he would function, frankly. Seems like a thing he needs. Anyway. Oh, God, we're going to put off a bunch of people with all of this, you know, (laughs) jack-the-bottom separatist talk. (laughs) I like to live in a world where Jack Zimmerman, the bottom separatist, uh, maybe doesn't fully separate from society, but at least maintains a secret, a secret bottom grievance sort of like notes on his phone. See, that would be a funny AU. That would be a funny AU because it would be built upon a foundation of nothing. Just like (laughs) bottom separatist AU. (laughs) I would read it. I would read the heck out of it. I mean, the thing is, right, like my favorite fic is fic that's off the wall and has one little, at least one little point into the canon reality. Like, you can make an argument that the characterization is built in canon, but everything else is just, like, fucking crazy. That's what I like. I can't help it. I think I just rediscovered the crazy fic I want to write, which is about Ransom and Holster universe hoppers. Oh, I hope you do. I hope you do. Where there's just like an A universe of tropes for Ransom and Holster to basically, what's that fucking show that Scott Balcula was on? (laughs) Quantum Leap? That's it, basically, right? (laughs) Like Ransom and Holster Quantum Leap into different like fanfic tropes. Yeah. Oh my God. Wow. I'm getting myself excited just talking about it. Can one universe just be like not Check Please characters? It's just like Star Trek Enterprise. God, Bacula's there. And they're like, we gotta get out of here. Monster <laughs> keeps saying that he's like, can't leave until he bangs Captain Janeway. And like, she's not even on this show. All right, well, follow for more updates on Tomato's fic about uh, Ransom and Holster quantum leaping into different, different fanfic tropes. Let's go back to canon, which is obviously as fascinating as my many ideas. We're going to be talking about comic 1.7. Assist! With an exclamation point. Comic also has the first blog post, so we're getting somewhere towards official webcomic status. Very exciting. So the format of the Check Please blog was not quite cemented yet. What I think of when I think of Check Please blog posts is jokey header image at the top, and then a cut, and then some like notes on the post. This is not really that, but there are a couple things that I pulled out that I thought were interesting. I never wanted Check Please to be a slice of life webcomic because it's got a lot of plot and character development to dig into, but the extras are a cool way of doing a slice of life story with a sitcom-y feel alongside a more plotty story. I do think that's actually a 
pretty accurate description of the comic. It does sort of feel like the slice of life stuff is more easily relegated to the extras, whereas the plotty stuff is often in the main text of the comics, such as it is. I guess this indicates that by the time we get to 1.7, I mean, we've already had Bad Bob and the Hockey Prince, we seem to be into plot territory, whereas I do think that the first couple of strips maybe feel like a little looser. And it does seem to be the case that she wasn't totally sure this is necessarily going anywhere. But now that we're on the seventh strip and she's making this blog post, it does seem that she's codifying things and things are being cemented into a more traditional serialized webcomic. The fact that these things are now being posted to the Check, Please Tumblr rather than her Tumblr. I don't know. There's like an element of formalization going on here. I also think it's really interesting that she says that she enjoys the extras as a way of doing sort of slice of life peeks into a more plot-driven story. That makes me really wonder about her intentions as an author and what she sees as imperative to a narrative and a text and what she doesn't. Who knows? But I I find that kind of interesting to think that slice of life characterization is not part of the story. It's interesting, especially because so much of what I would think of as the plot doesn't even happen in the comic. It's like alluded to having happened in between the last comic and the one that's like happening currently. We don't see Biddy get an assist in this strip. He's only telling us that he got an assist in a hockey game. We show up in Biddy's room. Um, He's excitedly clutching his hockey stick and saying, I got an assist, I got an assist, I got an assist in our very first game. He's really, really excited. And he is extremely animated as well, telling the story that it was the last minute of second period and he was coming down the boards and D-Man revs up from Dartmouth. And he's like, and this is a quote, I'm gonna fuck you up like the fucking pussy midget fuck you are, fucker. And I'm like, oh, sweet Mary, please don't check me. Please don't check me. Please do not check me. Um, At this point, Biddy is clutching his hockey stick in fear instead of excitement. And then he holds the hockey stick like a gun, which is kind of fascinating, and says, but I got my wits back. And then you bet him I dangled him with that old Biddle Spinorama. And then I threw some sick sauce to ransom, and then he one-timed it in glove side. So some major hockey lingo. And then there's a very cute picture of Biddy clutching his hockey stick, and his face is scrunched up in excitement, and there's a gif slash GIF with high frequency sound blinking on and off above him. Uh, And then he clutches his hockey stick in a hug and says that everybody hugged because that's what hockey bros do. You should have seen Jack's stupid face as an aside. Then he says something really interesting, which is, dear Lord, I love hockey. And then we cut to a party at the house, the season's first kegster actually, and that the frog who gets the first point of the season will be the frog to do the season's first official kegster. And then Ransom and Holster kind of bring Biddy forth. Biddy's asking, hey, where's Jack? Doesn't he live here? And then we, we see him do a keg stand with Ransom and Holster holding his legs above his head while they explain that Jack doesn't really do house parties since he doesn't really do drinking anymore. Then Holster says, oh yeah, poor guy's probably up in his room getting sucked off by another Zimmerman puck bunny. And Shitty says, gentlemen, let's chit chat more alcohol abuse. In the Kickstarter version where he's hugging his hockey stick, he says, Lord, I love hockey. 
So she went back and she edited out the word dear. Huh. I don't know. What's the difference between Lord and Dear Lord? I don't know. Okay. Um, because when you print, sometimes there are different standards for what's legible on a printed page and what's on the screen, obviously. I'm not going to waste our podcast thinking about what the screen-to-text legibility process was. Sauce basically means a pass. Assist is pretty clear. You have the puck. You hit it to somebody else who then hits it into the goal. An assist is basically any play that contributes to the goal. The Mm -hmm. person who hits the puck into the goal gets the credit for the goal, but every player who was involved in the play gets credit in the form of a point for the assist. Players, points, they show something about that player's viability on the ice and their relationship athletically with the rest of the team. Especially after all the problems he's been having in practice, it shows something about his ability to contribute to the team's success. In the NHL, team standings are calculated by points. This is not something that comes back really in check, please. Yeah, they don't. I mean, Ngozi uses hockey when needed. We've discussed multiple times, is this a sports narrative? How do we know it's a sports narrative? What's going on with the sports? What's the relationship of this comic to the sport it's kind of examining? And I think at this point, Ngozi is a hockey fan. So things like, well, I don't know. I mean, I can't say that for sure. That's just my suspicion based on what I see in the text. But I think the fact that she's exploring, you know, maybe not in a particularly technical sense, but she is exploring what it means to be successful in a hockey team. I think that's worth thinking about. And we're thinking about Biddy's reaction. Dear Lord, I love hockey. It would just be more interesting to see some hockey play rather than hearing about it. So I'm really interested in the idea of how summary can be used to tell a story in interesting ways because a really common piece of writing advice is show, don't tell. But that's a piece of writing advice that's really geared towards a certain kind of prose, a certain kind of like American short story. And there are all sorts of ways that you can play with that or think about it or push on it. And I think Ngozi does that. That's like one of the narratively interesting things she does is by using the vlog as a framing device, she's always coming back to summary and she's always coming back to Biddy's kind of narration, which is unreliable because he is a character who is a series of narrative conceits that like seems like a human being is unreliable because human beings are unreliable. Our perception is not objective. There's something interesting in the way that he frames stories and tells stories. What's interesting to me about this is that even though the story might be more compelling in some ways, if she just showed the hockey game, we learn about Biddy through this. We learn that he's that he loves hockey, that he's really excited about doing well, that he is like kind of pissed off at Jack. So I think it's kind of an interesting way of performing characterization is to have Biddy give a summary. I don't know that it's always a strong writing choice. And I think sometimes the comic leans into it too heavily and then like is not very well paced. But I actually think in this particular strip, I didn't mind it because it shows us something about Biddy. And he's so fun to watch. He's like so animated. There's something really joyful about, about that. Two thirds of this strip are just Biddy sitting in a chair with the same background that he's already been shown against in multiple strips, talking to a webcam. Maybe she doesn't have time to figure out how to draw a whole hockey game, but it's not like an either or thing either. 
where you can only show Biddy's summary with him sitting in a chair gesticulating with a hockey stick or you show the hockey game, you can weave shots of the hockey game into Biddy telling the story. Or you can put Biddy's narration over the hockey game. Or you can start with panel one, Biddy has an assist. Panel two, Ransom shoots a goal. Panel three, the goal horns go off. Panel four, Jack makes a stupid face. And then the overlay text is, you should have seen Jack's stupid face. And then he goes back and he tells the rest of the story. And there is something really great about comics that really lends itself to that kind of weaving. So it would have been more, maybe more interesting. I think that this strip is doing something with summary maybe more or less successfully than it could have been done, but fairly successfully, like enough to keep me engaged. And I'm really interested specifically in how Ngozi uses summary because of what we've talked about, right? Where sometimes updates feel like the story happens in between updates. And then there are these like little references to what happened without ever actually playing it out. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't work. And then as the comic goes on, I think it becomes less and less effective. The problem to me with what ends up happening in Check, Please, especially as you get into years three and four, is that it's not giving you a summary. It's not doing this thing where Biddy is like, and then this happened, and then that happened. It just completely neglects to address certain things in entirety. And you are left to just presume that at some point something was resolved. I do love the Kegster shots though. They're really something. Holster is wearing in this strip a lavender shirt with American flag shorts. I just wanted to put it out there. I don't have anywhere else to go with it. I just thought I'd say it. I also want to point out that Shitty has on the back of his like fucking jean vest with the sleeves torn off an American flag as well. So this is clearly a this is clearly a fashion trend among uh, the hockey frat bros. One thing I have to say I really like about the way she draws Holster is that whenever he's not wearing his glasses, I don't know how she draws this, but I do feel like I can tell that he uses glasses. Like there's something about the way his eyes don't focus properly that I'm like, yeah, that's what my eyes do when I'm not wearing my glasses. Let's talk about this chirp, actually. I'm gonna fuck you up like the fucking pussy midget fucker you are, fucker. Very clever. Clever chirp. Got him good. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? When you think about pussy, right, as an insult. Obviously, just the sort of thing that you, like, throw at your sports opponent, but it's also gendered and also implies something about the person that you are throwing it at. Would you expect to see this kind of language later in the comic? For a while, you don't see anything of this sort. And then at the very end, going into the end of year four, as a point is being made about what it all meant, I feel like you get some more of this kind of targeted, pointed, anti-bitty aggression. It's my presumption that basically everybody in the NCAA is saying things like this to each other a lot of the time. 
I'm going to fuck you up like the fucking pussy midget fucker you are. I feel like the third to last word in this series should probably be a different word for verisimilitude, but it obviously can't be. And obviously this kind of language is not like allowed, but people say all kinds of things. This kind of language raised the stakes of identity in a way that meant I was relieved when good things happened and felt excited and felt a propulsion forward in the stakes of the comic. And something about the absence of this kind of language makes the stakes feel different. I'm not saying I love people saying terrible things to each other. Obviously, I would prefer we live in a world where people didn't say terrible things to each other. But since this is introduced so early in the comic as part of the way to measure the conflict of the whole series, bringing it up as a possibility and then diverting from it is very different than never bringing up the possibility of this kind of language and this kind of attitude. Well, Biddy's reaction to this is not, how dare you use that kind of language? Pussy is a misogynist thing to call somebody. His reaction is, I don't want to get checked because at this point in time, all of this brusqueness is just kind of like part of the fun, weird, you know, fucked up homosocial culture of hockey. But the story is Biddy doesn't want to get checked. He needs to learn how to get over his fear of checking. So he gives them the uh, old Biddle spinorama. Yeah. Oh, I don't, I don't even think Biddy needs to like engage with all of the connotations of that language. But the fact of its presence tells me as the reader something, right? And then the fact of its absence also tells me as the reader something. So I guess that's what I'm thinking about. Part of sports, part of a contact sport, because you asked, why would anyone want to get checked? And the answer is like, nobody really wants to get checked. No, my, my question wasn't, why do you want to get checked? To me, the issue is, why does Biddy want to put himself through all of this? If you're high on the drug that is toxic masculinity enough... Maybe you've just decided that you're going to subject yourself to ritualized violence and that's how it's going to be. If you're somebody like Jack, where you're just hockey, that's it. You're, you're into hockey. You know what it is. The cost of possibly being bruised up and subjected to being called a pussy is very little to you in the great scheme of things because you're just willing to enter into the codified ritual of masculine violence that is this sport. Okay, fine. But that's not Biddy. He is terrified of being checked to the point where it's a phobia, where he seizes up and he collapses. In life, there are some things that you just have to do even if you have a phobia of them, playing hockey is not an equivalent situation. Again, Biddy doesn't need to go to Samwell on a hockey scholarship to live the rest of his life. He has opted into subjecting himself to a sport where a primary part of the sport causes him to have fucking panic attacks. And he decides for some reason that the shortest way from where his life is now to where it wants to be is repeatedly forcing himself to go through exposure therapy voluntarily to do something that is completely optional. 
Thank and you. it's not even like Jack where it's like a larger existential issue related to a network of thorny mental illness and personal angst issues. But on a game-to-game, play-to-play basis, he's completely fine. He can play hockey. It's the larger way in which it's lurking in the background of his life that causes him to, like, panic and have anxiety. With Biddy, the context of being on the ice... Every single time he goes even to practice, he ends up like collapsed in the middle of the ice. What I'm saying is it's illogical for any human being to decide that that is what they needed to do or that they should do. That's what I'm trying to say about checking. It's not that I think that like, why can't you just play a game without checking? Like, I understand what fucking hockey is. It's why Biddy's forcing himself to play hockey when this is the issue that he has. I guess I'm just going to tell my whole life on this fucking podcast and that's fine. So I've been editing a lot of it out. I appreciate that. You don't have to edit this one out. Um, I <laughs> I play roller derby, or I did play roller derby for several years, and then uh, broke my ankle, and now the world's on fire. So, like, not anytime soon. But hopefully someday we'll play again. So I am biased by my own experience of uh, growing up not playing a contact sport and then playing a contact sport as an adult. Part of growing into a contact sport is training yourself out of your panic reflexes. Uh, when you see someone coming at you or you see something coming at you in real life, you're like, oh shit. And then you get out of the way. But if you're playing a sport, if it's the thing that's supposed to be coming at you, you train yourself to not say, oh shit. And instead to like take a hit properly. Right. Obviously like Biddy has some kind of like dad related football issues, which are never explored deeply, but which do get brought up a couple of times. And then again, at the end, we kind of see one thing that happened to him in his football career that seems pretty bad. So I think there's a very clear correlation, which I, which we did mention, like Protestant work ethic, get better at this one thing. I'm also really interested in the way that this assist opens a door for him with the other other people on the team. The way that being valuable on the ice opens a door to a certain kind of homosocial relationship that wouldn't be accessible if he did not train himself or attempt to train himself out of this panic reflex or out of this fear reflex. So I think for Biddy, it also is a thorny tangle of emotional issues. It's just that his emotional issues are not as immediately disruptive. Like I've seen people headcanon that Biddy has like PTSD. I think it's totally arguable from the text. It's not something that I personally like feel is an important part of the character for the way that I write about him, but I think it's totally readable into the text. And so I think there's like something in that desire about training yourself out of the panic reflex or the fear reflex, which is gendered as effeminate. So that's what this is making me think of, because then, of course, at the end, we see him do the manliest thing of all time, a keg stand. I don't know that that's really the manliest thing of all time, you know? It's definitely about putting your mouth on something and sucking it down. So... Pretty manly, I'd say, yes. I don't know. There's something interesting there about Biddy's relationship with his own physicality and presentation that is worth maybe unpacking. Here's a guy who is different from other people, and what he's decided is that he wants to fit in with them. So he's going to force himself repeatedly to be exposed to trauma completely unnecessarily just so that he can try to fit himself into a completely absurd and irrelevant social order. 
But it's a social order that he clearly has attached some kind of value to. Again, if he didn't do any of this, he'd be fine. There wouldn't be a story. Or maybe there'd be a different story. Like, I don't know, these completely tame adventures making <laughs> friends with, like, the other nerds at UGA seems like a fine webcomic to me. They've got kegs there. But Biddy loves hockey. I'm curious about what prompts that. Like, does he love hockey because he's been successful? Does he love hockey because he hugged all these dudes? Like, what's happening? What makes, what's the specific thing that makes him just go like, oh man, I love hockey. Like he says it right after getting hugged by everybody, but I'm really curious about like his relationship to that moment. What I think is interesting about Biddy saying that he loves hockey is that honestly, this is the only point in this entire comic where Biddy says he loves hockey, I think. This is like one of the very few times where he actually seems to like genuinely be enjoying this game for the play of the game. In terms of hockey being a toxic sport, uh, something that's very prominent in this strip is alcohol abuse. Seamless transition. Completely seamless. So we know the ages of these characters. Biddy is 18. Ransom is 20. Everybody else is of the age of majority in the United States. So we've got underage drinking going on. Just to be clear, this is behavior that the school and the team are passively tolerating. People, everybody knows this is happening. Like, everybody knows this is going on. When I think you are a lone wolf in the den of college and you're just living in your dorm or you're living off campus and you're doing whatever and the school is not really paying attention to you, they're able to live in ignorance of what it is that you're up to. It's pretty plain that everybody's living in this hockey house doing underage drinking. I forget where I read it, so I'll have to go back and see if I can find it. But uh, Ngozi actually says that the hockey team purchases the house. If we take that as reality, then not only do they know probably what's happening because like every, they know that everyone's hanging at this hockey frat house, but like by virtue of not stopping it as like landlords, they're more than tacitly condoning it. They're basically actively condoning it. You've got to find that post for me because I don't remember it and I would love to see it. I just found it a few days ago, so I'll, yeah. I'll go. That makes no fucking sense. Like, why would an NCAA hockey team own a house? Okay, whatever. You know what? Doesn't matter. Substance abuse is an evasive problem in hockey. You, in our notes, linked a Players' Tribune essay, which I remember reading back in 2015 when it was published by Rich Clune about his battle with substance abuse and how bad it was and how it impacted his behavior, his mental health, especially drinking. I think also pot. He snorts cocaine. Oh, that's right, cocaine. Yeah, he, uh, he's on painkillers. He's got like a gigantic number of extremely painful injuries and he's basically just like walking around in a medicated haze. Yeah, that's right. Um, And he talks also about the sort of like ultra macho atmosphere of the teams he's playing on and how 
it basically like required this kind of intense numbing of the self. It's a great essay. We'll link it. I highly recommend you reading it. It says a lot about the environment in which these characters are finding themselves. Although, of course, they are on a college campus and not in the AHL. But some of them, like Jack and Holster, both were playing. Jack was obviously in the queue. And then Holster was also playing. I forget where, but he was playing somewhere. He was playing He was playing in Waterloo, Iowa. Also not in the NCAA. Waterloo Blackhawks, which is a Tier 1 junior ice hockey team in the U.S. Hockey League. USHL players can go on and play in the NCAA. So it's not the thing as the queue. It's like a lower ranked league. It's still a path towards professional hockey playing, which is not through a, a university. And so there's a different series of expectations and a different culture. The thing that's interesting about that Players' Tribune article is that at one point he says, my problem is not unique. And it's one very lightly written line. He doesn't obviously go into great detail about how invasive a problem it is. It's a first person account and that's really its strength. But there is this one very subtle, almost throwaway transitional sentence where he just sort of hints at the fact that this is something that's going on for a lot of people. I do not think the implication here is that anybody we meet and become great friends with through reading Check, Please has the kinds of truly serious issues that are being raised in some of these accounts of substance abuse in hockey and toxic culture in hockey. We meet at a certain point several NHL hockey players, and it's never implied that any of them have any kinds of problems. Literally any problems at all, never mind substance abuse problems. Some of them are drawn to look very ugly, but that's... (laughs) They seem to be managing, though. Some of them are drawn to be very beautiful. (laughs) More on that later. Some of them wear eyeliner. You know, it's a very accepting league. (laughs) Yeah, but when we think about this reality of the NHL in this essay, uh, but she wrote this long screenplay, um, which dealt very seriously with substance abuse in a much more intense way than Check Please ever does. So it seems to me from the 20 pages of it uh, that I have read and from what she mentioned on her blog, clearly she was thinking about this. When we think about Jack, even if those problems are eventually not examined, they're pretty serious. It's a widespread institutional problem. It's something that proliferates across all of hockey. Maybe it like a very high quality school on the hockey team. You've got people who are limiting their serious partying to the weekends after games or something. But I think it's pretty obvious that this is a crew of people who drink a lot. That is true to the comic. And it's also true to my experience of serious college athletes. There's a lot to talk about in regard to Jack in this strip, even though he is not, in fact, in the strip. Like, he's not here at all. There's a a whiff of Jack about the strip. Exactly. You should have seen Jack's stupid face. What does that mean? Here's what I'm curious about. Stupid face 
is such a particular phrasing. I don't know whether this is because the internet has changed how language functions for me, but people being like, oh, his stupid face, right? Flirtatious or sort of like uh, romantic in nature in some way, um, or frustrated by the fact that someone is attractive. On the other hand, Jack was probably making like a bitchy face. <laughs> so I'd never thought about it being romantic at all. I call everything stupid. I call everything fucking stupid. I call me stupid. I call my cat stupid. I call like what I ate for dinner stupid. It's such a disposable word to me. It does not fucking mean anything. Biddy makes this assist and then they get a goal and then Biddy looks over at Jack and Jack is making some sort of stupid face. And it's unclear what that means. And so I'm wondering is, is he angry that Biddy did something right the way we see him being angry that Biddy does something right a couple strips from this one? Or is it he's pleased that Biddy like did something right because he's watching this player's progress and he wants the team to do well? That's what's not clear to me. I always assumed, I had never thought about the frustrated by attraction point until like rereading it for this recording. So, so I don't know. I feel like I always assumed until this point that he was mad that Biddy did something right. Cause he just wants to write off this like stupid fainter and just like get on with his life. Um, but maybe it's a combination. I mean, if I were, if I'm being generous about characterization and assuming more complexity than might be implied, then I would assume he is both pleased that the team is doing well and frustrated that it's this dude who like keeps fucking fainting at practice which to be honest i would probably also be frustrated if someone kept fainting at practice like that seems you know not unreasonable to be frustrated about i just think it's not totally clear i think it's one of these vague things where it's thrown in there to emphasize that biddy and jack have this conflict and jack is still an antagonist at this point but it's not clear to me, you know, I think when he's pissed off that Biddy did something correct a couple strips from now, it's because Biddy took away an opportunity that he wanted to do something in front of somebody he wanted to impress. People on this fucking team make assists all the time. Every single game in which they score, presumably. Then we find out that he lives in the house because Biddy makes an aside about, where's Jack? I thought he lived here. What I'm wondering is, if Jack sucks so much, why would anyone ask him to live in this exclusive house that only a accommodates uh, five people. Plot hole. We did it. We figured it out. Okay, we did it. We took down check, please. <laughs> That's it. It's all over for this comic. So we know from... There, there's a there's a post on the Patreon blog, which I like haven't looked at in a thousand years. One of the posts suggests that Holster like is not a big fan of Jack, at least at the beginning of the comic. Which there's is a, a couple posts about how Holster doesn't like Jack. It's great. One of the best things about this comic. And I love the look on his face in the last panel where he's like, oh yeah, poor guy's probably up in his room getting sucked off. It's like a eye roll kind of face. I'm really interested, right? Who gave Jack dibs? Did they give him dibs just because he was bad Bob's kid? Is it because he was captain? Like, I'm curious. We never find out this timeline, but I would assume maybe that had something to do with it. 
And then I'm also really curious, like, how much does Jack Zimmerman actually bring puck bunnies back to his, like, house room to get sucked off? Or is this an assumption that people are making based on the fact that he has a certain, like, celebrity cachet or whatever? Something that's interesting is the comic kind of picks this thread back up all the way in 3.5, a comic that's called The After Kegster which feels like it comes from another galaxy than this particular strip. There's a point at which Ransom makes a comment about whether or not Jack is dating somebody and is hiding a secret girlfriend, and Ransom says that Jack has a lot of things he keeps to himself, but it's never been the Chixies wheeling. So here's what I think is true. Ransom and Holster are under the impression that Jack sleeps with a lot of women. We don't see any evidence of that in this entire comic. All we see is Holster making a quasi-sarcastic comment about it here. This is all the context that Biddy gets in that 14.5 strip, which I guess we'll get to sooner rather than later because it's at the sort of end of the current semester the comic is in. Jack goes to a dance with a girl, but he was set up with that girl, like, blindly as part of a, you know, winter dance ritual where your friends pick out a date for you, and Jack is leaving alone like without his date. We don't actually get anything in this entire comic about Jack casually hooking up with anybody. And indeed, all of the textual evidence we do have appears to indicate that he's something of a serial monogamist, if anything. So I'm really curious where that impression came from. I mean, whether it's assumption. Do Ransom and Holster live in the house right now? Yeah, so they live in the house, so presumably... So I'm just really curious where they got that impression or if it's something that Jack has worked to cultivate. I, I have a hard time seeing him as calculated enough to cultivate it, but maybe. Well, so this is the thing. We've talked a little bit about how the sort of camouflaging helpfulness of heterosexuality that's just sort of bestowed to you when you participate in something like a hockey team. It's the sort of thing where all Jack has to do is like be having a conversation with a girl or be seen being flirted with by a girl Hmm. Jack not even doing anything. And these guys <laughs> may just be making assumptions. I'm being completely serious. That is basically how it works. The reason I laughed is because I just had an image of Jack standing there with like a completely blank expression and someone with her hand on his arm and Holster being like, oh, fucking Jack again. <laughs> well, you want to know what? That's funny and probably really true to the comic and also kind of how it works in the real world. Like, you see Jack... He doesn't seem gay. Seems like the kind of guy who would get like a, with a lot of chicks. It's probably just projected onto him, is my guess. There's, yeah. no, there's no context other than Ransom and Holster, who do the most chick-wheeling of anybody in this 
comic, or at least do the most talking about it of anybody in this comic. They're the only people who ever make these comments or these suppositions. Jack does not seem to have any women falling over him at all. Yeah, I'll have to revisit because I remember taking these comments at face value when I first read the comic, which again was before, when I first started reading the comic, it was well before Jack had, I had a real belief that Jack and Biddy were going to be anything other than antagonistic towards each other. There's also the possibility that like, yes, this is actually happening, but he's not that into it. He's just letting it happen. Yeah, yeah, I could see that too. I mean, this is part of the the sort of debate about this character's identity. People can read in different ways because the comic never says anything unambiguous about it. It really is like sifting through scraps, trying to come up with a concrete reading that just doesn't exist. There's nothing in this comic to support that this is regularly happening other than a couple of comments made by Ransom and Holster one of which is at least sarcastic that Biddy overhears and is unable to contextualize. But uh, something else he overhears is the comment that Jack doesn't do parties and doesn't do drinking, dot, 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 anymore. This is contradicted next semester in the comic Playoffs 1, 1.18, where Jack is drinking a beer And Biddy's like, oh, they told me you didn't drink. And Jack says, well, that's not really true. I drink sometimes, just not very often. And And then he storms out of the restaurant like a little baby before he finishes his beer. This is so weird to me. It's like, if you want to stick to, I I don't know, it's like this weird cross-communication thing where it's like, you just told us that this character has some sort of a substance abuse problem. And in this comic, you're telling us that he doesn't go to parties and he doesn't really drink. And then 10 comics from now, you're telling us that, no, that's actually not true. He does drink, just not a lot. He drinks a few times over the course of the comic and never has any problems with it. I just don't understand why this turn is here at all. I didn't mind it. It's true to how addiction works for some people. Like maybe his problem was never alcohol. Maybe alcohol was like a thing that made other things easier. That's like pretty true for people sometimes. Like addiction is so different for everybody. You know what I mean? So that never bothered me. What bothered me is the fact that he clearly had some kind of relationship with substances, maybe not alcohol. Maybe alcohol only is a trigger for other kinds of things when he drinks it in certain contexts and he feels safe drinking it in this afternoon in this like place, whatever, like whatever. That never bothered me. What bothered me is that his relationship to substances is highlighted and then never examined in a nuanced way and then completely dropped, which gives the impression that Biddy solves his addiction problems with his dick or something. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. Because my problem with this is not what's the truth of Jack's relationship to alcohol. It's why does the comic keep like kind of bringing this up and contradicting itself? Either bring it up because it means something or don't bring it into the strip at all. Either you're trying to build to a reading where, yes, he's a drug addict and he's in recovery so he doesn't drink and therefore he doesn't go to parties or it's something else. But like, I don't know, it's, it's just a bunch of like weird mis- like misfired things that 
taken collectively, like don't really mean anything. So you wish it hadn't been brought up in the first place. Yeah. I think when I first read this, I thought it was one of those, it was actually maybe related to this idea that Jack has this image that people attach to him. And then his actual self is like a little less, a little more of a cipher or a little more complicated. And I thought we were going somewhere with that. And uh, then we did. <laughs> but well, I he's much less complicated than he actually seems here. So I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought he had like something going for him, but nope. The real Jack is the Jack that lives in my head where he's got a lot of problems and he's much more interesting. Fully believe that in the fourth year of the comic, he's just back on drugs. Like, yeah, that's my that's my understanding of the character. That That also is my favorite way to rationalize the final year of the comic is that the only way it makes any sense whatsoever is that he's so completely like, numbed by a combination of like the high of reaching the pinnacle of his existence and also some sort of illicit drug combination that he just can't unfreeze his face to like make an expression. (laughs) That is also how I choose to live with the last year of the comic. Yeah. Any final thoughts on assist? Uh, yeah, one time when I worked in tourism, a former NHL player paid for something very, very expensive. And he was a real dick the whole time. He was a dick the whole fucking day. And anyway, that's my whole experience of people who played in the NHL. And it was someone who's a real asshole. Listen, I believe it. I feel like a lot of them are probably not that nice. A lot of people are just not that nice. I'm not that. An even larger number of men are not that nice. So you'd think once you got to men who play hockey and then men who play NHL hockey, you're probably working on like a very low percentage of nice people. Next time on Checked is Pleased, we are going to be talking about comic 1.8, Checking Clinic. I'm pretty excited about that, I think. Let's wrap it up here. I think we did a good job. I think we kept it nice and tight. I think we hit all the major points. I think we've gotten to the end of the podcast without explicitly stating that Jack probably is a bottom. And um, maybe that can be our sign-off. Maybe that's what we've been looking for. I actually am fully into this. I fully like that. You can find us at checkdisplaced.tumblr.com. You can also now find us on Spotify. You will hopefully eventually find us on iTunes once I get my act together. And you can find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com. Yes, and I am at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R on Tumblr. And my uh, AO3 handle is familiar. And I have several other handles that you can find if you click around. I don't. I've had the same online name since I was 12 and it haunts me every day. Goodbye. That was so smart of you. That was so smart of you. I wish I'd... Yeah. Bad planning. Don't do what Secret Don't does. Okay, guys. (laughs) See you later. Bye. Bye. Okay, Jack's the bottom. Have a great night, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, guys. He takes it out the butt. See ya.